0: And then the science, which as I write in the report, they manipulated for decades to hide the risks of glyphosate, but eventually catches up with them, with independent scientific bodies saying it probably causes cancer in humans. And so mm. then they get sued by a hundred thousand people with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And all their documents come out and you see how they would have different conversations among the scientists. You can't say it's not a carcinogen. We haven't tested the formula. We're worried about this and that aspect of how it impacts biology. Mm. Let's not study that or let's get a friendly scientist to write a report saying it's not a problem. Let's ghostwrite papers and not Mm -hmm. tell people that we wrote them. Strong-arming regulatory agencies. You know, the EPA scientists thought glyphosate was a carcinogen back in the 80s. They were worried about that, but it got covered up.
1: Stacey Malkin, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Zach.
1: Of course, of course. So I I came across you on the, the Russell Brand podcast. And that was I, fun. That, that, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was a quick but intense conversation. And that led me to going through the report that you wrote on on monsanto like 100 plus pages like the shit in there is absolutely crazy and we'll get into the specifics of that report but i wanted to ask you first before you even came across monsanto or uh were doing some of the things you do now what brought you into investigating corporate wrongdoing food pesticide industry how did you get drawn to that lane
0: Well, it was a long time ago, you know, actually almost 30 years, I was working as a reporter in Colorado and I moved to Washington, DC and started to work with environmental health campaigns and environmental health scientists. And I worked for many years on toxic chemicals and consumer products. I wrote a book about toxic chemicals in cosmetics, uh, which is called Not Just a Pretty Face, The Ugly Side of the Beauty Industry. Um, So it was an expose just about the products we put on our bodies and the toxic chemicals that we're exposing ourselves and our kids to every day. I did not really pay attention to food, though, and chemicals in food Mm. until um, it was about 10 years ago. I first came up against Monsanto and... I switched lanes at that point um, to work on food and agriculture, and I worked on a political campaign. We tried to label genetically engineered foods in, Colorado, in California in 2012. It was a ballot initiative with huge energy behind it. It was almost a million signatures you know, gathered from moms petitioning in the streets. People really wanted to know what's in our food, and it seemed pretty simple and straightforward. We just want a label. You know, all of hmm. Europe has those labels. Why can't we get them here? So it had huge public support. But what happened was, and I was the media director of that campaign, so I was really on the front lines of debating with industry and dealing with media. <clears throat> and what happened was Monsanto and the chemical and food companies spent about $45 million in the course of about a month. It was just like raining hell of disinformation in California in the lead up to the election. Advertising everywhere, radio, TV, billboards, flyers to people's homes, and it was all confusion. Much of it was inaccurate. What was really surprising was that there were professors, academics, scientists, Nobel laureates, all sorts of people you wouldn't expect that were speaking the lines that we knew were being written by the chemical companies and spreading misinformation as their foot soldiers. And we wanted to understand how does that work? You know, what's going on behind the scenes of these campaigns? Who's getting paid? How does, how does the uh, information flow from companies to front groups and their minions? Mm. So we started to investigate in the wake of that campaign, those questions. And we filed many, many public records requests at public universities, getting emails of professors that we suspected were working with the chemical companies and their PR firms. So we started to uncover lots of secrets that um, the companies didn't expect would ever get out into the public. So that's part of what my report is based on. And then the other piece is, um, at one point, as you know, Monsanto got sued by now over 100,000 people who claim they got cancer from their exposure to glyphosate-based Roundup herbicides. So that mm. caused many more documents, the hundreds of thousands of pages of corporate you know, secrets and documents out into the public. So we post all those on our website at usrtk.org. We've analyzed them over the years. We've written and broken many stories about them. And I decided at one point we should compile all of this into a report. It took a long time. It took me about four years, my co-authors wow. and I, to do that. Yeah. And it just came out. It's called Merchants of Poison, How Monsanto Sold the World on a Toxic Pesticide.
1: Yeah. So, so that initial movement for labeling in California, did, that started out as a grassroots movement and then moved into a full-blown political campaign?
0: It did. Yeah. And it did. Uh, we lost that campaign in California and that was heartbreaking. You know, what we saw was there was very consistent support, about 65% all through the, and this is bipartisan support, you know, across all ages, races, demographics, political persuasions, people just want to know what's in their food. Mm. But when the disinformation campaigns hit, um, that impacts people, you know, most people are making decisions about what they vote on based on what they see on TV. So a lot of people who thought, oh, they want the bill to be stronger or whatever, you know, voted against their own interests. Um, After that, that was 2012. We saw very deliberately that the pesticide companies gathered their troops. They said, we have a PR problem on our hands. And they just aggressively hit the accelerator on um, disinformation and science denial campaigns. New Mm. front groups popped up. Tons of funding went into them. A whole rash of I wrote about this in the report. Female writers came on the scene.
1: Um,
0: I saw they were co-opting.
1: They (laughs) they were co-opting moms, like trying to paint moms that like freedom for food or something like that. Strong moms who are willing to. And, and, you know, explore all different types of foods for their kids, including the the scary things that Monsanto puts into their food. You know, God forbid someone uh, knows the things that are going into their bodies. So Monsanto had to get rid of that real quick.
0: Right, right. Like we, we you know, they're just trying to bully you with all this um, scare campaigns about GMOs and pesticides and um, attacking the organic industry, attacking organic moms. That was a big theme. Um with names like Food Farm Babe and Psy Babe and si Moms and um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, blogging yeah. with, academics who defended the tobacco industry for 20 years they just sort of like brought them up and put them out into the media it was interesting to watch and we just sort of as i said had a front row seat to all all this unfolding fighting against it we filed our public records requests in 2015 and started to get documents in and we were immediately in the crosshairs of monsanto we had Uh, articles about our group showing up in science publications, uh, trying to malign us and discredit us. I mean, it's been really intense the whole time. They really fight hard. I think they do better than, I mean, they are more aggressive than the tobacco industry and the oil industry using a lot of the same disinformation tactics, but more aggressive in the attacks on scientists, public interest groups, and journalists. So I, I write a lot about that in the report, and I think it's one of the key findings that they just go all out to attack science that reflects on their products poorly.
1: Yeah, and I think you sent said at one point in the report that Monsanto was spending over a million dollars a day when they were fighting that initial <laughs> GMO labeling battle. Like, what does that feel like <laughs> when you're coming face to face with this nuclear bombardment of? Just massive amounts of PR, uh, like a crippling budget. I, like, the only thing I can compare that to is I used to play college baseball and I was in a mid tier D1 team, which is like we didn't suck, but we also weren't, you know, a UCLA or, or University of Florida, something like that. And occasionally we would play these powerhouse teams and we would get beaten so badly sometimes, like just <laughs> shellacked on the field that you couldn't help but be in awe. Like, look how badly we're getting our asses handed to us right now. Like, it is insane. Like, it, it, it so, and, and we got to leave after three days. We were like, all right, see you guys. Like, we're we're off to, we're back to our division, you know, back to the mid-tier. Like, how did you feel while that was happening? And what gave you the fortitude to keep going after corporations like that, that have this unlimited budget that will do things that good people aren't willing to do? Like what gave you the strength to keep going in that aspect? Cause I, if that happens, like if I'm getting blown out in nuclear fashion, I'm just like, all right, like, Whatever.
0: <laughs> I love that. Oh, question. I'll put poison, poison ever... in my body.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, put, I'll take the poison. Stop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no one's ever asked me that question. I love that question. Um, it was really hard. It was really disorienting. I got really angry. I have regrets about that. I wish I could have stayed out of anger and aggression. Um, and ultimately, you know, what was interesting is we did actually win the campaign on election day, but we had lost too many votes in the early days. And that really came down to television advertising. And so there was, and our consultants told us right up at the front, you have to raise $11 million to win this campaign. We only raised nine. And we still think if we had had a couple more million dollars to run ads, we could have pulled up enough votes maybe to win so that's just a painful truth about how elections work that i think we all need to reflect on but when it came time i think this is an important piece of the story about how to hold yourself and your own energies in situations like this to not be in anger and be in a place of showing the positive and showing what's good in the world and the values we want to protect when it came time to run our ad, and we had one, one 30 second spot. So the idea was you have one 30 second spot and you run it enough times in enough markets to get the message through. So, what was that message going to be? What was that ad going to be? Well, we had produced many, many ads throughout the campaign. We had celebrities, we had pesticide, you know, anti Monsanto, Agent Orange, lots of different messages. Um, and there was an ad that some of the women on the campaign put together called food is love showing a mom serving food to her family and saying simply we want we have a right to know what's in the food that we eat and feed our families and when we are we had this firm that did focus groups about the ads all all the ads that we ran the idea was to take you know the strongest positive reactions of all the messages and put them together into one message. They came back at the end of that process and said there was one ad that blew away all the other ads and messages on every single category that to the point where it's not even a question, the ad that we're going to run is food is love. And it had an amazing positive response. It also had something to do with the fact that younger people were voting later and more progressive people tend to vote Mm. later. That was also true. (laughs) The interesting thing about that, and then I'll get to the question about how we stood it to keep going, because that part's interesting, too. But after we ran that ad, it was so powerful. And Monsanto, part of the way that they won is they focus group tested, and I mean millions of dollars, on the weekend before the vote, for example which messages are resonating with who. So they would target farmers and older people and younger people with different messages. That, that's what you do when you have basically more money than you can spend yeah. on an opposition campaign. And they didn't know that this was the first of four states. So this repeated in Oregon, Washington state, and Colorado. We lost all those ballot initiatives in the uh, industry spent a hundred million dollars between the four to crush them the end of all that and all that polling monsanto came out with a new ad campaign they had ads they had business cards and it was food is love was the theme i thought isn't that interesting that they spent a hundred million dollars on focus group messaging advertising and at the end of it all they stole the ad idea of two women
1: do you think that were they were they trolling you like we'll take your message and we'll spin it to make ours like almost you know if like two comedians are ripping back and forth they just lean into it and they're like all right if you call me a fat piece of shit like i am (laughs) i i am a fat fuck like let's what do you got what else like do you think it was a troll or or was it more like their marketing team came across that separately and thought you know, this is the – it seems like a pretty big coincidence for it to not be related at all.
0: <laughs> I think they were pulling the shit out of every message, and they knew that that was the most effective thing that had come out of all the campaigns, mm. um, a- along with the just simple fact that we have a right to know what's in our food. So we used that name for our organization, U.S. Right to Know, and went forward with our investigations. And why did we do it instead of running away? <laughs> I don't I don't know. I think it maybe because I grew up with three brothers and I, I like a good fight. I mean, we realized early on we're going to launch an organization that is not going to be popular because, it, you know, it's going to get attacked by industries that don't want us looking for their documents, that don't want us doing the kind of reporting that we do. But we felt we needed to do it because no one else was doing it. And there's just... As we all know, the investigative space in journalism has really shrunk, and there are many journalists still doing good work, but a lot of times they're constrained by advertising, by what can't be said. Um, In the New York Times, for example, they will do some critical, hard-hitting reporting on the pesticide industry, but it will be tempered more than it should be to to Hmm. show the truth to the public. And then they will also do the occasional, you know, 5,000 word advertisement (laughs) disguised as a story for the biotech industry. Um, So, you know, we really have to be discerning consumers of knowledge. And we just decided we want to start a group to do research and reporting that no one else is doing. And that's what we're going to focus on is what others aren't already doing.
1: Yeah, it's funny. So I'm actually rewatching season one of Narcos right now, and I'm uh, and uh, and I'm going through the report, the Merchants of Poison, and I'm thinking in my mind like. Monsanto is like the Pablo Escobar of herbicide and uh, like the the food industry, because they literally every time Pablo Escobar needs something, he's just goes, who do we have to pay? Pay them off. Do we need to put something in the newspaper? Write, write an article. Who's who in the press do we need to pay? Just like lab scientists, uh, cocaine, jungle, lab, like who do we need to pay off to make this happen? And I'm reading the, the report and I'm like, oh, holy shit, like these guys are the, you know, the the mafiosos of the herbicide industry, like the, the kingpin uh, cartel. And th- there is a lot of similarities.
0: I haven't seen the show, but I do think that's true. And I was just arguing with someone on Twitter this morning about um, concentration in, in the agribusiness sector. And their point was, well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. And, and we're seeing concentration and mergers in every single sector of the economy. Well, that's true, but I think in some of these cases, it's the concentration of the most corrupt. The mm-hmm. companies that were the most aggressive in science denial and externalizing their harm, paying people off, public relations, screwing the workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have a super concentrated agrochemical and seed industry where just four companies own most of our agrochemicals and seeds. And the seed part... It's important. What Monsanto did was they figured out how to genetically engineer seeds, corn and soy, primarily they started with to tolerate the spraying of their herbicides and survive. So you can spray glyphosate on a field of corn and everything green will die in the field except for corn that's been genetically engineered to resist Mm. it. So... What do we get? The consequences of that have been, and we're predicted from the start, of course, more and more glyphosate, stronger and stronger weeds, farmers needing to use more chemicals. And then the science, which, as I write in the report, they manipulated for decades to hide the risks of glyphosate, but eventually catches up with them with independent scientific bodies saying it probably causes cancer in humans. And so Mm. then they get sued by 100,000 people with non-Hodgkin lymphoma and all their documents come out and you see how they would have different conversations among the scientists. You can't say it's not a carcinogen. We haven't tested the formula. We're worried about this and that aspect of how it impacts biology. Mm. Let's not study that or let's get a friendly scientist to write a report saying it's not a problem. Let's ghostwrite papers and not Mm. tell people that we wrote them. Um, strong-arming regulatory agencies you know the epa scientists thought uh glyphosate was a carcinogen back in the 80s they were worried about that but it got covered up so tons of science denial and really bad science that these companies are putting forth yeah
1: yeah and I, and i want to get into those <laughs> specific tactics but first for for people like me we should clarify monsanto's main product and also their uh their customers because i knew before the report before the podcast with russell brand i kind of knew they were the general monster in the closet in the food agriculture industry but i didn't know what their main product was and, and who their customers were so just very briefly who like what does monsanto do and who are their products or who are their customers rather and what are their products
0: yes good question and they also monsanto does not exist anymore as a name they were bought by bayer
1: that's right yeah um
0: and so their main product line is uh herbicides and seed traits so herbicides and seeds seeds that are genetically engineered in many cases to go with the herbicides um and so that's where they're making their main profit line I think they had like 65 billion dollars of profit in um or six, it was six billion dollars of profit in 2015 and almost two of that came from glyphosate so you know that was an herbicide that was developed and patented by Monsanto to kill weeds and uh it is effective at that although it with its overuse, it becomes less effective. And that's something that happens with all pesticides. So now these companies, which have hit on a lucrative profit line, genetically engineering seeds to go with their herbicides, are now looking to double down on that strategy with Bayer has suggested a they call it a five stack trait, genetically engineered seed. So it would be a seed that's engineered to survive the spraying of multiple herbicides. Um, so when and, we and blow are,
1: ourselves up, the only thing to survive on this planet will be the the seeds from bear <laughs> essentially.
0: Or the weeds that or have the weeds, <laughs> evolved yeah. to get around them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, the environmental groups call it the pesticide treadmill. Bayer bought Monsanto in 2018. They've, that has been a huge disaster for them, basically, um, because of all the lawsuits. I, I think they had themselves convinced there's no, not no problems here, nothing to see here. But juries started to come back with, you know, in one case a two billion dollar verdict um, in favor of a California couple. This was just a couple who used glyphosate in their garden for thirty years, like wearing shorts and flip-flops and there's no warning on the product so why would you think it's a problem spraying it around their home property and both of them got nod hodgkin lymphoma i mean that is incredibly incredibly rare so yeah they're, they're the companies are in trouble but on the other hand they're very resilient and you know now they're presenting themselves as the solutions for climate change and we we There's just a a huge amount of propaganda and PR that goes into, especially, I mean, defending the pesticides, but especially promoting genetically engineered foods and confusing people about that issue and making tons of promises about how they'll feed the world and they'll do this, that, and the other that they just don't have the technology to do. Yeah. But they do know how to make it weed resistant. So they're going to keep doing that.
1: Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned that metaphor that I love in the report, the pesticide treadmill or the destructive pesticide treadmill caused by the the glyphosate and the genetically engineered crops and how it's accelerating that treadmill. Can you talk about the nature of that treadmill and like where it's going to go? if this continues to happen? Like, what will our food supply? What will food infrastructure look like, you know, 10, 20, 50 years from now, if we keep going in this direction?
0: Well, the the, the profit model of the system is basically uh, get farmers growing huge monocultures of one crop, corn, soy, canola, there's a handful of crops, and just a handful that at this point have been genetically engineered. And this happens with or without genetic engineering. What the genetic engineering did was made it easier to perpetuate this system, which growing huge monocrops of one crop, you get weed problems, soil degradation, you need more fertilizer, more pesticides, herbicides, insecticides. So in order to get these huge yields of this one crop You have to go in on the chemicals, and then the farm needs more and more and more chemicals, more fertilizers to deal with the depleted soil, um, more pesticides and insecticides to deal with weeds and insects that really thrive in these monoculture environments. So then we have tons, most of the farm, if you drive across the country And we've all seen, you know, the huge patches of green that look like a puzzle of sort of dead land or there's just nothing on it. Mm. It's just that's your your monoculture land. We're growing corn and soy on most of the farmland in the U.S. Now, are people eating and getting a nutritious, healthy diet from corn and soy? No. Most of it's going to feed cows for you know, feeding feeding lots. Yeah, like
1: factory farming, stuff like factory that. Factory
0: farm animals feed um, cars, biofuels, a lot of it's going to biofuel, and then processed food factories that use corn syrup and soy oils and all of these products made into ultra processed foods. So I think where we're going with the food system is, and I've reported a lot on in Africa, which hasn't yet transitioned to that system. There's still a lot of subsistence farmers growing traditional crops um, for their families on smaller pieces of land and and things like that. But there's a big push to transition Africa as one of the last sort of left places where we can implement this monoculture Mm -hmm. system. There's lots of land in Africa, in other words, for farming um, that industries see as untapped course there may be people living on it and growing crops to feed themselves but
1: yeah um
0: we're, and i we're guess untapped, very, you know
1: <laughs> yeah un- I, would, I was gonna mindset. say untapped untapped to uh you know corporations in america means people who aren't living in a highly industrialized state and you know spending all their money to get the next best thing so that's like untapped sounds very like holistic and oh like untapped we gotta you know use those resources and get the fullness out of that land. And in reality, it's it sounds like the exact opposite.
0: Right. Well, it is uh, Northern corporations eyeing profit potential in places like Africa. And so we see people like Bill Gates, I write a lot about him and the foundation funding efforts to transform, I say transforming African agriculture to this An industrialized system where farmers move stop growing the traditional crops and focus on the um, the staple crops corn soy big monocultures using inputs fertilizer trying to get genetically engineered seeds patent protected and accepted in africa that's a big part of the propaganda push because there's been a lot of resistance um And you know, again, what are we going to do with all this corn and soy? Well, cows, cars, and ultra-processed food factories. So you'll hear Bill Gates talking about how AI is going to save farming. We'll just put robots on the farms and free farmers up to go Live in cities, and yeah. Do you know? Do whatever labor doesn't exist. I mean, it's just um, concerning. And of course, he talks a lot about the the new wave of ultra processed foods that we're all supposed to um, embrace for climate purposes, supposedly. But things like um, fake meats and cell cultured products of all kinds. So they're doing experiments also with genetic engineering to add flavors and textures to corn and soy yeah. basically that's what we need flavored <laughs> corn <laughs> yeah
1: right that's uh, when, I, when i'm eating great. corn when i'm eating corn that's the one thing i think is that that why doesn't this have a strawberry melon flavor to it why why do i not have more options <laughs> right. with corn um you, you,
0: or, or like soy that has you know, that bleeds like meat the impossible burger
1: oh my god that, i mean
0: you know some people like it that's fine but i just i don't think it's a solution it's a solution I, I, for climate change. Do,
1: I think I think it's disgusting. I, I've had some fake meat where I guess the chef did a good job and it's, you know, encased in enough other things in the wrap or, you know, there's enough sauce on it where it doesn't really taste disgusting. But I've had some fake meat on its own. And it, it literally is like, I don't know, it, it's it's something feels wrong about it. Like, it's not just the taste. I'm like, why is this if, if this is so good for us, why does it need to pretend to be meat? You could shape it like anything. Like, why are you trying to trick me to eat it shaped like meat? Yeah. Um, you, you said the word transform semi-sarcastically about Bill Gates. And I, I'm curious because you've gone through thousands of documents for Monsanto. You've gone through a ton more with Bill Gates and what he's trying to do to, you know, quote unquote, transform Africa. Are there buzzwords like transform or other phrases that you come across in PR statements or very corporatized statements where you pick up on lingo? It's like, oh, transform, like this is what that means, you know, like here's what it really means. are other words like that that stand out to you. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, there are whole firms working on words like that, right? Like gene editing is a good one. We'll Mm. talk just called CRISPR is the new kind of wave of genetic engineering. So it's basically snipping or cutting a molecule of, of DNA strands to give something a certain property. So gene editing is an interesting term, I think, because it just sort of brings to mind like, oh, there was a mistake and we're fixing it. It's, it's a little edit, you know. Yeah,
1: just a second DNA. draft.
0: But what they see in actually the science is that that edit can wreak havoc on, of course, the the cell around it, the DNA, the organism, and in the environment, what are the impacts? so there there's not a lot of holistic thinking. Um, we once one of my colleagues went to a conference a few years ago now where a bunch of industry PR folks and executives were really struggling with how are we going to sell this new wave of genetic engineering to people? Um, we're going to use words like synthetic biology, but oh, people don't like synthetic, so that's not great. Let's call it fermented. Fermentation mm. sounds good. It's like beer. Kombucha. So
1: gonna, get a lot of hipsters like on board. Kombucha. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's good. So we'll call it fermented. Um We'll call it non-artificial. I mean, you know, they're always looking for the
1: non-artificial. <laughs>
0: for
1: the <marketing> <laughs> oh, my God. We'll, or
0: in Bill Gates' case, you know, we'll talk about feeding the poor, and everybody likes that. So I'm just going to stick with that. Oh, he came out recently with Magic Seeds for GMOs.
1: Good. T- <laughs> um, targeting the kids. That sounds like uh, something I would have been interested in when I was six. Ma- magic Seeds
0: oh yeah they target the kids big time on yeah. youtube videos with sciencey videos that look really cool and they're interesting to watch and they um they sell an, a broader ideology that technology is going to save us we don't need to worry about equality or government or the power of consumers the, the techno whizzes will fix it all mm. so i i don't have a lot of faith in that
1: yeah i i I wanted to go back to one of the tactics that Monsanto used for a second because you mentioned the ghostwriting papers, and I actually I laughed at myself when I wrote that because immediately I thought of rappers, you know, having songs ghostwritten for them. That's the only time I've ever heard ghostwriting used in relation to you know any form of content is when you know someone wants to pay a writer behind the scenes, they write the song, the artist takes credit for it, boom you're a ghostwriter like is is that what's happening like is monsanto literally approaching scientists or, or people that are capable of writing scientific papers and saying you know hey make sure this paper turns out this way we won't put our name on it like you put your name on it and take credit for it is, is that what's happening essentially
0: yes essentially and they they talk about it almost that directly you know in the emails um There'll be a case where, oh, there's a problem in the science. Um, Scientists are concerned about some aspect of of, um, glyphosate. So let's have a paper saying it's not a problem. We need to get a a good scientist to write it. They hired in one case a scientist. They didn't like what he wrote, so they went looking for another one. Um, Mm. There was a case where they were writing a paper, working very hard on it. There were emails saying, we worked so hard on this, I lost sleep working on this now the hard work begins of public affairs so the promotion of this paper and then you look at the paper and there's no indication that monsanto was involved at all it would say no conflicts of interest Hmm. you know that was when these emails came out some of that was updated with disclosures but a lot of the science in the public record and really especially on genetic engineering you know proponents will talk about thousands of studies show it's safe well thousands of studies have mostly focused on performance and technical aspects not certainly not holistic long-term studies really trying to understand what the consequences are for health and the environment Um, or they'll suspect that gee, there might be a problem if we genetically engineer seeds to resist dicamba. That's an older, more toxic pesticide because there's a big problem with dicamba drifting from farm to farm. So you can see in the documents that Monsanto scientists stated that concern, went ahead and pushed anyway for approval of dicamba-resistant seeds and pushed those seeds on farmers. and Millions of acres of farmland across the U.S. were decimated by this drifting pesticide. Mm. So they knew they did it anyway. It's all about the profit stream and the short-term view of how a company fares to its shareholders. And, I mean, that's a problem that's much bigger than Monsanto. Are we really going to be a society that says profit matters more than human life? More than the future of the environment and the food system for our children. Yeah, and I think it's becoming so clear that we can't be, but industries and billionaires are desperate to keep their hold on the power that they have. So that's, I think, another story of the Monsanto papers. They really take it quite far.
1: Yeah, I. I so <laughs> one of the things I wanted to ask you because you're spending so much time, you know, with these. People's words and, and going through the papers, I imagine you can start develop you start to develop a sort of personality profile based on all the the people that you're reading about and going through thousands and thousands of documents. Based on all of your research, do you think that people that are at the top of corporations like Monsanto believe that they're doing good for the world? Have they done some sort of Mental mind twist to convince themselves that what they're doing is actually good or are they truly? Agnostic to the effect that they're having on society and they know they're causing destruction They know they're causing people to get cancer and they they really just don't care as long as it's making money
0: I think they really believe what they're saying and that they're doing good for the world I think there's a culture of belief of, it's, it's a dogma, it's almost religious, and it's fervor around the belief that genetic engineering is necessary to save the world, um, to feed the world, to it, it, just this incredible optimism and techno fixes that does not bear out in the evidence and in history and does not have a perspective that is really even willing to look at the impacts of people on the ground in Africa, for example, when it comes to Bill Gates, he is not looking at the data. Their own evaluations show that what they're doing is not working, it doesn't matter. It's what he knows, monopolizing, wealth maximization, power right. and control. And so that's, and then the foundation's whole personality is manage up to Bill. Um, I think, so I, so I do think, I also think the head of a corporation really I mean, if they're going to buck the, the need to make ever-increasing mm. short-term profits by making changes, they're out the door and, mm. and someone else comes in. So, yeah. so you really can't make change at, at that level of a big corporation. But I'll also say another thing that comes out is some of the main messengers, the most vocal spokespeople, really do have a personality type. And these are more like coming from your... PR firms are your front groups, people who've made a career of product defense front groups. Like this is a whole sector of the economy, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year from like the food and soda, junk food, pesticide industry are going to support these PR and spin groups. And some of those, the the people who rise to the top of that field really are bullies. Mm. They're just really bullies. They just attack people as their way of being. So, yeah, it tends to be like a very male aggressive bully personality
1: yeah i mean this 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 sounds like a future mark ruffalo movie like the whole the whole situation with monsanto mark ruffalo did the the movie spotlight where he's going against the church one of the biggest corporations he did the movie dark water i believe it was called with like the um companies that were polluting the the water supply like i'm reading this i'm thinking like mark ruffalo is gonna star in this movie one day merchants of poison like i'm gonna see this hopefully you know in the next five or ten years
0: i hope he's fantastic i you know when i watched dark waters i actually cried i was bawling my eyes out in the theater because i was like i know this stuff i know that companies do this but they do that? Like they knew and they still did. Hmm. It's a horrifying story about yeah. what happened. And this is not. <laughs> I mean, that was DuPont. We see all of the companies that are now reigning the food industry have these stories of they knew, they lied, they covered up, people were getting hurt, the yeah. environments were getting destroyed. And they kept doing it anyway because their, may, their profit is the only measure of success yeah. and sometimes they get caught like okay now a hundred thousand people are going to sue you and well they may have some big payouts but in the end if you add up the balance sheets the profits you know were more than the huge legal payouts nobody got fired a lot of times the product is still on the market And uh, this is our economic model.
1: (laughs) It's a very morbid calculation when you you look at some of the ways that companies like Monsanto weigh things where they go, okay, if we kill 10,000 people, we have to pay them out X amount. That's one cost. If we have to discontinue this product or completely alter the ingredients of the product. Here's this amount, which one's higher? Okay, the the people, we care about people, but like the product's going to cost us more. Like we'll just pay out the people when the time comes.
0: I mean, yeah, the industry really all that matters at the end is the balance sheet and the profits for shareholders. Um, I, I just keep saying that because I think we have to question that system at a really deep, deep level and figure out how to shift it fast because... Um, we, we, you know, we have multiple ecological crises converging on us, and I think they have their roots in the same place and they have their solutions in the same yeah. place. And with agriculture, it's going to be back to the land, communities, local food systems, uh, growing diverse crops that you know, can deal better with weeds and pests when you're rotating crops, when you're practicing agroecology. It's what a lot of farmers in Africa are doing and pushing for yeah. and fighting against these huge interests that just want to take over the land. Um, but I still have hope. I think that we can still turn things around and that educating each other and really looking at possibilities and looking systemically at, I mean, the, the, the fact is we have we have to, This is an opportunity and a crisis Uh, reinvent the way we do everything um, in order to, to create a human society in which our children can thrive.
1: When, so when Monsanto is using those profits and they, they decide to attack a journalist or a group of journalists, can you talk about what that attack campaign looks like? Because it, it blew my mind when I was reading some of the lengths they'll go through to attack just a single person who may have a few thousand followers on Twitter. Like what does a full-blown Monsanto attack campaign look like?
0: Well, I, we saw very clearly what they were planning when it came to us because there was a 31-page public relations plan that said right at the top, U.S. right to know FOIA communications plan. So they laid out, um, partnerships with academics. Um, they were planning to see documents from universities before we even saw them. So that was interesting. They have very close relationships with universities because chemical companies are giving them a lot of their Mm. funding. Um, they really scrutinize what you say. And this was really came across in, um, all of the things that came out about Bayer. At one point, uh, a, a whistleblower in France gave reporters a list of 200 journalists, public officials, public interest advocates that, the, that they were following with really personal details about where people lived, their contact information, what their views were. Jesus On pesticides, the uh, media described it as the friends and foes of pesticides list. Just tracking all that, they had weekly reports in a campaign called "Let Nothing Go." So,
1: (laughs) absolutely, anybody
0: anybody talking about this was going to get a troll after that on Twitter or on Facebook. Like even my mom would say, whenever I write about GMOs, some troll comes on my page and starts arguing. Like at that level of scrutiny, they had an intelligence center that was devoted to tracking what people said, what they did, what their personalities were, how to deal with them. So those sorts of things. Um, They had, in our case, there was a whole grid about what to do if my boss, Gary Ruskin, sent one tweet. (laughs) Gary Ruskin first tweet. Do this. Uh, You know, 10 tweets. This. 50 over, and now if it's this many, 50 people over multiple days, this was going to be a crisis. Um, So they're really, really threatened by public discourse around the truth of their products and the risks and harms. In a way, I think that's, I mean, that's important to note. It's why they have to spend tens of millions a year on front groups, spin groups, trade groups are in the billions of dollars that they're spending on which our trade groups are just like an institution to defend a product
1: yeah i that's what it sounds like they're they're protecting people knowing anything about what they actually do (laughs) so right yeah so it
0: takes this level of disinformation
1: i so i wanted to in the last 10 minutes or so i wanted to Dive a bit more deeply into Bill Gates and what he's doing in Africa. I'm sure we could do seven podcasts on this. <laughs> You've done a ton of research on Bill Gates, and I, I wanted to ask you what What do you think? Are I mean, you may even know at this point. Like, what is Bill Gates's game plan in Africa with food and agriculture, and how is he executing it? And what is the difference between some of the things he's saying publicly and things that he's actually doing in africa
0: right well we've i've looked only at the agricultural development program of the gates foundation which is of course a huge institution that does lots of other things i think it has far too much power with no accountability almost no visibility um in africa they they call it the green revolution for africa which is you know very clearly stated as transitioning farmers from traditional farming and crops to uh, industrial farming of commodity crops Mm. um, because that will feed the world it's very disingenuous because as i said even their own evaluations show they haven't anywhere near reached the goals they set out which were very much marketing advertising statements Mm. we will double food security and incomes for african farmers and it's not only bill gates giving his own money to that and this is important to understand because people say well he could do whatever he wants he's wealthy but it's bill gates convincing other donors including the u.s government including european governments to give money to these programs it's convincing african governments to give subsidies to these programs. So subsidies for farmers to buy mm. fertilizer and other inputs. Now, as I, we mentioned earlier, it's very input intensive. So this type of farming needs fertilizers for the soil. It needs pesticides, herbicides, insecticides, and those things are expensive for farmers. And what's happened in India, and what there's evidence that this has happened in Africa is farmers um, get into a debt cycle. They, they get, maybe they get given free these products to begin with. They transition their farms. Now they have to buy them. Now they can't afford it. Now they've lost the farm. Well, that's land. Someone else can come along and, you know, take up that. Is is that good? Good for the economy. It's good for Western corporations that want to come in and sell their products and land speculators who want to come in and buy the land. Uh, there's no evidence showing that it's helping food security. In fact, you know, as Southern Africa is one of the most food insecure places, and that's just gotten worse and worse, and especially during the pandemic. So there's a lot of opposition and fighting back in Africa. And I've worked with and interviewed and talked with many of these groups that have been trying to get the attention of the Gates Foundation, the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa, 50 groups across the continent, Um, faith leaders, 500 faith leaders at one point wrote to the Gates Foundation, like what you're doing, we respect you, but what you're doing, we need to have a conversation. What you're doing is harming, not helping. This was very clear. The Gates, they literally ignored They did not even respond to these groups. That is just such hubris.
1: So the groups in Africa were writing to Bill Gates saying, can you please stop doing what you're doing? And Bill Gates just, you know, ghosted them, essentially.
0: Right. The the Gates Foundation did not engage. I think at one point they had a meeting and what I heard of that meeting was just like the Gates Foundation people explained why what they're doing was good. It's a very, you know, the African groups describe it as the neo-colonial model. It's the new colonialism. It's how Western northern companies are trying to exploit the resources of Africa for their own business models. And profit stream. Yeah, that's a very. Then,
1: uh, I, I was gonna say that's a very healthy relationship. You know, you're in a healthy relationship when one person is telling the other person, "You need to do this." When they're kicking and screaming, saying, "No, f this, I don't want to do that. that." That's the the foundation of something that's uh, truly fulfilling.
0: And there's a and there's a big propaganda element to it. So. Um, yeah, there was just a study that came out about Ghana, the the Gates funded group. It was called the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa. Because it's gotten generated so much controversy in the last few years, they changed the name. They took out Green Revolution, which was their whole marketing term, and now they just call it Agra. Well, Agra sponsored these this like reality TV show in Ghana where There would be a farmer he was struggling and outside expert came in and would show him you know how to farm correctly essentially you got to buy the right seeds the commercial seeds you got to buy the fertilizers it's very patronizing it's very much has a language of you know these old ways of farming are old and you need to modernize and do things our way and I just think it's insidious. I mean, it's even one of the more surprising things and disturbing things I've written about the Gates Foundation was a group they started at Cornell University called the Alliance for Science, which is based. It's a PR campaign that was geared at convincing African governments to open their markets to GMOs privatized seed laws. Mm. The patenting of seeds is important so that companies own the seeds and farmers have to buy them every year. That's, I think, the long-term gain is into intellectual ownership of the seeds on our planet and patented ultra-processed foods, because what else are you going to do with all that corn and soy? I think that's Bill Gates' ultimate vision it does he believe that that will feed the world he probably does but he is at his core uh, an aggressive monopolist i mean that is why he's one of the wealthiest people on the planet and that was all proven in the courts you know through the microsoft antitrust cases and he sort of left that and now he's playing out a vision of intellectual property ownership through the foundation in my view
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what you're describing, it sounds like, you know, because I'm sure Bill Gates is not the only billionaire that's trying to influence the world's food supply. But it sounds like rather than just one enterprise trying to have an impact on a certain segment of society, that it's more of a network of global elites that are trying to control the world's food supply and ultimately, like you said, gain intellectual property and have, uh, you know, total reign over how people grow and consume food
0: it's 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 disturbing how a few people have so much power and how long you know will we put up with that yeah um it's an interesting time to be alive
1: yeah yeah so you mentioned the the open letter to bill gates from the african faith leaders and i actually pulled out the the quote That was highlighted in one of the articles that you mentioned this letter. And I just wanted to read it because like hearing the words from these faith leaders and reading them was pretty powerful because it's like it's one thing to say that they don't want it. It's another thing to read the actual letter. But um, this is from the African faith leaders. They write the Gates Foundation support for the expansion of intensive industrial scale agriculture is deepening the humanitarian crisis which is black and white you you literally there's no way to read that where you know it's like a text from a an ex-girlfriend and you're like does she want me (laughs) does she not want me it's like no you're you're literally destroying the the you know the planet the 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 continent and then you're affecting people's lives I, i i don't know if this is connected to Bill Gates directly, but I saw that the Kenyan government passed a law last year banning anyone from sharing, selling or exchanging uncertified seeds, which sounds like an Onion article, banning people from exchanging seeds. Is that dr- connected to what Bill Gates is doing?
0: It's part of the, the long term game, I think, and and part of what they've always been interested in and the companies are interested in and in Western governments is getting Africa to, they call them, this is an uh, example of a a euphemism, a term that is the marketing term. They call it seed harmonization laws. We want to harmonize the laws across Africa to um, uh, allow intellectual property rights, basically. And part of that in some areas is criminalizing or threatening to criminalize seed saving and exchanges the old way. So that we can go to the new way, which happens to be good for northern corporations, and most of the Gates Foundation money for Africa, by the way, does go to northern groups and entities, research facilities, um, and so. I think it's a really interesting example of this, yeah, this idea of of the power of billionaires to set sort of a course for the future, and what are the points of intervention that civil society has. Um, that consumers have,
1: I think yeah.
0: you know we need to figure that out, um, and I think Africa's resistance is a good example of um, like listen to the farmers and let the local knowledge and um, obviously the continent's been feeding itself for millennia, and. Um agroecology shows really great promise for uh, how could we scale it up? How can we have a vibrant network of locally controlled and owned diverse ecological farms across the world? With climate change, how else can it be done? These systems are, and many researchers and scientists have said this, too big to fail, too vulnerable. Yeah. so. I think we need to hedge our bets against vulnerability and lack of diversity and this huge industrial farming system.
1: Yeah. Just the- one
0: of many things we have to figure out how to deal with. Yes. As we S- face the future.
1: Se- seed harmonization sounds like the love child of Bill Gates and Joel mm-hmm. Alstein mashed together and they just started <laughs> one big super church for for seed spirituality. Uh, th- thank you so much, Stacy, for coming on the podcast. I encourage people to go to U.S. Right to Know website, check out Merchants of Poison. It is truly an eye opening report. And there are also a bunch of other articles on Stacy's page with Bill Gates, food industry really, you know, it, it is cool. Like it, it's harming the planet, what the people are doing. But like, as I'm reading it, I feel more informed. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's very cool that there are people out there like yourself that are dedicating their lives to these issues. And th- thank you again for taking your time to to come on the show and talk about it. as As we leave off, where can people check you out uh i I mentioned the website but can you just clarify Mm -hmm. the different socials and and websites where people can find you
0: sure first of all thank you so much this was a really fun conversation and we can do it again sometime for sure Um, you can find us at usrtk.org and please sign up for our newsletter we send out a weekly free newsletter of our investigation findings, and then the best public health reporting. Um, So that's a great way to keep in touch with us or on social media, on Twitter. We're pretty active at US Right to Know and at Stacey Malkin for me. And um, yeah, I really do think that knowledge is power. That getting informed is one of the most important things we can do. And it can be scary and hard to know about this stuff. But once you know, you can't unknow. And then it's, I think, upon us to help others to see. So Mm. I think it's a time of seeing, you know, in times of darkness, the eye begins to see. And that's really the work we're doing is trying to shine light on the parts of this that our companies don't want us to see.
1: Yeah. Don't say too many catchphrases because Bear is going to steal them and put them in their next PR campaign. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're (laughs) listening to this podcast like, oh, that's good. (laughs) Seeing, seeing. (laughs) then they'll they put will. It, they'll put out thank a campaign are. their next their next food campaign tomorrow it'll be food is seeing the um, eye
0: begins to see that was thomas goeth well yeah. thank you for the work that you're doing too to educate people and get these conversations going
1: well, that yeah thank you so much stacy it's been a blast
0: yeah okay we'll talk again